Hi, welcome to Fighting to Win, the series where we share real stories from the front lines of the environmental justice movement. We're the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice, and we support activists around the country who are fighting against toxic chemical pollution in their communities. Most of them are everyday people who discovered toxics threatening their neighborhoods and decided to create the change that they need. Here at CHEJ, we connect communities to each other. So when COVID-19 hit, we launched a webinar series to bring organizers, activists, and community leaders together despite the distance. These conversations have been rich and inspiring, and now we want to share them with you as a reminder that we are together in this fight. And not just that, but we are fighting to win. Subscribe to Fighting to Win now, wherever you listen to podcasts. And thank you for being with us. And uh, welcome everyone to another uh, another episode of Living Room Leadership. I'm Gustavo Andrade. I have the pleasure of serving as CHEJ's organizing director. I want to thank my um, co-workers Julie Silverman and Jenna Clark for setting up this wonderful series. Um, and I wanted to welcome and thank uh, Mr. Lou Zeller, everybody from Brettel, um, and, and Lou in particular, I, I wanted to give a huge, huge congratulations to. Um, and the reason we're here today is uh, to talk about the major, major victory um, that those organizers and activists, community members, um, earned over the behemoth Atlantic Coast Pipeline. So we're going to be able to talk about that. And I just wanted to give everybody a huge welcome and a huge virtual round of applause for Lou and his whole team at uh, Brettle. So congratulations, Lou. This is really, really great. Um, and I wanted to start with you. Uh, if you can give us just, you know, put it into context for us. What was at stake? Um, what was, what were the risks to um, our environment and our health from the pipeline? And um, what did it take to win it? Take it away. Well, thank you, Gustavo. And thank you, everyone. It's good to be here. And um, victories as clear cut as the one over the Atlantic Coast Pipeline uh, <laughs> as clear-cut, are relatively uh, rare. We don't often get the satisfaction of knowing that it's really all over. And even there are some among us who are not quite sure yet, quite not believing it, uh, that all of that work for six years uh, finally resulted in, in a victory. Uh, I should say, though, it, of course, we had many cohorts working uh, with us. And as you know, the old saw is that uh, a victory has many parents and, and a failure has, is an orphan. And, uh, but in this case, there were many parents. So there were many people we worked with in many communities all across Virginia and North Carolina on the Atlantic Coast Pipeline campaign. Uh, we did try to extend into West Virginia, but that never panned out, but it turned not to be necessary actually, although there was good work being done in West Virginia as, as well. We started our campaign against the pipeline and this pipeline and others, um, by the way, 
in uh, 2014 it was. I remember Lois Gibbs came to Greensboro, North Carolina. We had a, a strategy session on December the 7th, which was a Sunday, go figure. But that's the kind of dedication we've, we saw. And the campaign we put together was called Safeguard America's Resources. Uh, it, we had, it was complete with bunting and, and an eagle in the logo, and it's still posted to the website. But we were trying to reach out to uh, a cross-section of the population that didn't know the first thing about pipelines, first thing about natural gas, why this was happening. But it certainly the news had broken by 2014 that the power companies had this uh, plan to build this uh, 592-mile pipeline through West Virginia, Virginia, and North Carolina. Uh, we our initial assessments looked at what had the the impact would have been, and uh, the North Carolina route, for example, per capita income in that area in those areas were nine to 39 percent below the average income in virginia it was similar 11 percent to 52 percent below the average income so they were targeting poor areas in addition to uh trying to justify their campaign um there would have been 12,000 acres of disturbed construction 4,000 acres permanently taken out of use and as we as the campaign advanced, we ran into people who had experience. For example, a sweet potato farmer in Johnston County, North Carolina, said that an earlier branch pipeline he had allowed to come through his farm, and he said that land never produced again, like it's like the rest of it. And this was like 20 years after the feeder pipeline had been put in, so he was dead set against it. So in 2014, and then continuing, we set up a series of events, uh, uh, road shows, um, across, hands across our lands, and some of our staffers are on and volunteers are on can explain a little more about that. Uh, we had local resolutions calling for community veto. Uh, eminent domain was a major factor in this and landowner rights, and that was uh, part of the campaign uh, dedicated to the people who owned land who were farmers. So the campaign was designed from the beginning to reach out across the spectrum from very conservative communities to very progressive communities and everyone in between. Because if we, we've, we deduce that if we were to divide our, uh, uh, the population that we were willing to, to deal with, that it would be less, uh, uh, it would, there would be fewer people to share um, in the work. And ultimately, a part of the, the strategy was to, after that meeting in 2014, was to put resources, personnel, and, and financial resources into organizing communities along the pipeline route. So what we wanted to do was put like beads on a string or on a necklace to organize communities all across North Carolina, across Virginia tracking the pipeline because we knew that there would be a groundswell of opposition if we were able to get information into the right hands and the right hands in this case would be places like Cumberland County near Fayetteville, North Carolina or Clayton, North Carolina and Johnston County, Halifax, North Carolina up into Virginia including Buckingham which is in the center of Virginia and Nelson County all along the rest. And 
So our work uh, was done primarily in those first few years, organizing in those communities. And uh, some of the community organizers who were on uh, part of that campaign include Carrie Rogers, who's on the line with us today, Sharon Ponton in Virginia working, and also Marvin Winstead, who is a, a farmer who was part of the last, part of the uh, whole effort and right up to the very end when the uh, Atlantic Coast Pipeline people tried to invade his home in personnel protective equipment during a uh, pandemic, they wanted to enter his home and he stopped them from coming into his home. Uh, it'd be good to hear from Marvin about that. Oh so, my goodness. I, I mean, that's unbelievable. Uh, Lou, I am, I'm just blown away. Um, I'm looking a little bit at time here and there's so many follow-up questions I have for you. Mm -hmm. um, one of them in particular though, something that really struck me was the idea of organizing very, very disparate people, um, you know, ideologically. So we had some very conservative folks, very liberal folks, and then every, you know, everything in between along the line of the pipeline. Can you talk a little bit about the, um, you know, why it's so important to do that, but also what, are, what were some of the challenges that you found in, in doing that? Well, the challenges amount to being able to generate a message at the local level, which uh, does not assume that or take for granted that people either already agree with you or know anything about the environmental issues, the public health issues. In fact, people that may not even care so much about the environmental issues or the public health issues, but they would be really concerned about having their property destroyed or taken from them through eminent domain, a misuse of eminent domain, I might add. And so there's a, there were justice issues in terms of environmental justice, and there were other social justice issues as well, which were designed to uh, reach out to people who ordinarily wouldn't join an environmental organization and probably had never participated in one before in their lives. But we wanted those people because they were, uh, they were voters and they were constituents of their local bodies. So in order to get some that work done, we relied on people all across the spectrum. And that's pretty much not unique to this campaign. That's the way we've always worked. Yep, and what about, um, so what about the makeup of folks racially? Did you, did you have, so I imagine there were a lot of white folks, um, but in the cities, as we know, there are a lot of folks who are impacted by this, who are people of color, who are Latinos and, and African-Americans. Were there any, um, any challenges, any particular opportunities that you found in the campaign to, to bring people together? Um, on racial terms? Well, um, our organization, Blue Ridge Environmental Defense League, uh, despite its origins in the high country of Western North Carolina and Southwest Virginia, is very broad in its constituency. That is our members and our staff and our board of directors reflect the communities we serve. So um, it is, uh, 
it, it is a short hop from there to be able to talk to people on a level that I mentioned, which does not presume anything. Um, if we're if we're meeting if the meeting place is at a church, like it was in Union Hill, pretty much exclusively one church or the other, uh, there was a prayer at the beginning of the meeting because that's the way people start meetings in Union Hill or uh, other places that that uh, that we that we work in. And there was a, a union singing at one church. I remember just before the strategic planning session that we had at the in the church sanctuary. So. The meetings happen in fire halls, in libraries, in church fellowship halls, and, and what have you, working with residents that are concerned about the problem. All, all people have to do to get help from Brad, let's call up and say, me and uh, all of our neighbors are concerned about this. Can you come help us? So until January or February of 2020, we would literally hop in the car or the truck or whatever go to that place, whether it was a two-hour drive, four-hour drive, six-hour drive, or what have you, and work with ever who showed up and start from there. Yeah, and you know, one of the gifts of, of organizing is, is traveling, right, all throughout, um, in my case, all throughout the country, um, and really getting to know how different communities do things and, and how interesting it is, and you're really making me miss the days of just hopping in the car and uh, traveling and having meetings in person. Um, that's actually a, a segue into what I wanted to, to talk to you about next is, you know, where do we go from here? Tell us how, um, how the pandemic um, has affected your, you know, your organization and your ability to, Think about what's next, because uh, there's no better time to, than a victory to, to start thinking and, and doing the next thing. Well, we have kind of crossed a watershed with the COVID-19 virus, and who knows how long it will last. But one thing has not changed in all the 34 years that I've been doing this work, and I don't think it's changed now, in that community organizing is about people. It's not about issues. So the methods that we use to reach out to people may change. Instead of telephones, we may have internet, we may have text messages. Uh, I was privileged to be part of a training session and an actual implementation session of a, uh, a text banking this week and found a new tool for us to be able to use to reach out to people that have to, in order to get the message out or to do organizing. So. I don't think we'll ever give up the face-to-face -face meetings, not for uh, until, not for forever. But in the meantime, there are other means, uh, such as, you know, virtual meetings like the one we're having right here, and others as well that we'll have to substitute until we can get back to our face-to-face uh, -face, uh, format. Yep, and are th so are there other folks uh, from Bredel? I see Jen, um, I see her video here, who would want to uh, introduce themselves and, and if there are folks who had a specific role in the pipeline campaign, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, I know uh, and Jen is on, sure enough, Jen's been with us for just a little over a year working on a variety of campaigns and uh, and, and, and uh, 
she may hold the mileage record for bridal staff this year because she lives in Knoxville, Tennessee, and still works all over our service area. I, I know Marvin Winstead is on, and uh, Sharon Ponton is on, and Carrie Rogers, the community organizer who organized five chapters along the Atlantic Coast Pipeline route in North Carolina alone, is also on, on board today. So they might right. tell you a little bit more about organizing at the grassroots level. That's great. Um, can one of those folks, if you wouldn't mind turning your, your video on and um, you can unmute yourselves and just um, introduce yourselves and tell us about your, your role in, uh, in the Atlantic Coast Pipeline Victory. Hi, I'm, I'm Sharon Ponton and I live in Virginia and worked against the Atlantic Coast Pipeline here in Virginia. Um, Welcome, Sharon. And organizing is such an important part of everything we do every day. Um, and, you know, we did normal things back then when we were first organizing the chapters, going door to door, talking to people, educating people about what was happening, um, starting chapters. And I, I, I kind of call it empowering people. And then um, when we had those groups organized, we started challenging the powers that be, whether it was Dominion or the government, whether, you know, it was a local planning board or a state air board or water board. Um, we challenged and, and disrupted the plans, um, their plans. And, and that's, you know, that's the goal is to um, slow things down, give people a chance to catch up and fight back. And that's what we were all about throughout the entire process. That's amazing. Um, and congratulations. What do you think you learned through, uh, through this campaign? Um, that, I, um, you know, some Im important lessons that you can share with everybody else. I think that people should never give up. Um, there were certainly days that we were felt pretty down, you know, when it, a permit, we, we would go to a water board meeting or an air board meeting, have presented, you know, lots and lots of evidence about why a permit should not be um, given to Dominion for the pipeline, and they would give it anyway. Um, the, the governor at one point replaced two members on the air board because they were asking questions about environmental justice issues, and rather than let them vote, he replaced them. He took them off. He fired them. And replace them. So those were really hard days for people to deal with. And, and it's really important not to give up, to keep disrupting, to keep moving forward no matter what. And in the end, we outlasted Dominion and got this victory. That's right. One day longer, we had the same. That's right. Yeah, we're going to last day longer. one day longer than they will. Congratulations, Sharon. It's a real pleasure. Um, one of the events that uh, Sharon uh, was central to putting together along with our chapters uh, concern for the new generation and um, uh, in Virginia was the was uh, hands across our land hands across our land and then there's also the vigil uh, the vigil for justice in the governor's mansion um, back in 20, uh, 
18 or 2019 it was yeah i'm looking i'm fishing for the some of the articles here this was a um y'all can see uh this was some street theater that resulted in some news coverage here you can see the young woman holding up a toy chainsaw yep and this is when trees were being cut down in virginia and people were outraged and the sign says you can't cut us down so that was part of the message uh, to because people were feeling demoralized, like Sharon said, about that. This was the governor's mansion in, um, when was it? That was in March, the Vigil for Justice out front of, in Richmond, Virginia. Yep. This mm. is the 24-hour vigil. It started, it lasted for exactly 24 hours. It was held all night long. And here's Ruby Laurie reading part of uh, her speech and to the governor. This, mm -hmm. was, this was some of the other people then, and the picture on the left there shows you, it was cold and it was <laughs> dark. And we, we uh, but people, it was, a, it built spirit. That and the uh, street theater were instrumental, I think, in bolstering people's confidence that this could be done. And a, a physical action seems to be better sometimes than the more intellectual things, the reports and things that are done. For example, in October 29, there was Union Hill Real Property Racism and Environmental Justice Report that was authored principally by Sharon and also Kathy Mosley, who's on our board uh, of directors, vice president. Mm. So a lot of these things, these are just elements in the campaign that flowed out of the planning sessions that we had, not just in 2014, but uh, every so often when the case, when the situation called for it. Right. And folks on the phone, uh, Lou uh, shared with us some photos of different actions uh, that people were taking outside where it was obviously very, very cold and yet people had uh, smiles on their faces. So um, you're right, Lou, that sometimes uh, physical action can do more for morale than a million reports, right? It's something that everyone can participate in. In you know, uh, to, a mistake that's that I have seen made in community organizing is to get all the issues and all the facts, and and it's like there's a big pile of information in the room. But if no one else but the 20 people in the room have that information or can participate in reading it, writing it, and digesting it, then you're really talking to a very small club of people. So there needs to be a way to get that information out. So the, the report on racism and property or a, a vigil, people can understand that. A candlelight vigil, do it. Car caravan, we did a car caravan last week on another issue. That's just style, which is going to become more and more common, I think, at least for the rest of 2020. Yeah. But it worked. People were impressed. That's right. Um, let me do this. Uh, let me take a question from the audience. If anybody has a comment or a question for Sharon, for Lou, um, and for anybody else, um, just go ahead and um, unmute yourselves and ask away. Hi, I have a question. My name is Anna Loazzo. Um, I'd love to hear um, you talk about the interplay between uh, legal strategies and organizing and how they um, build off of each other. Um, thanks so much. 
Thank you, Anna. Uh, who, who wants to take that? Lou, I think that's you then. Okay, um, sure. Well, um, legal campaigns are part of the, uh, of the work, of course, and I know there were many uh, legal efforts. We mounted some of them ourselves, for example, challenging the special use permit in Buckingham, for example, which went all the way to the Supreme Court. Ultimately, it was dismissed by the Supreme Court because the special use permit, it was dismissed mostly on procedural grounds and uh, didn't really deal with the substance. But uh, at the same time, we ran a series of radio spots on Buckingham radio stations preceding the January 29th court date on the compressor station. So not, uh, I believe that judges and lawyers read the newspapers and listen to the radio. And in addition to that, there this the court of public opinion, which to me outranks the Supreme Court in terms of how things get done or how things are stopped in, the, in, in this country uh, these days. So in addition to doing a, having an attorney arguing the, the environmental justice issues in Richmond, there was also simultaneously or the week before radio ads, 30 second spot, which we uh, could share with anybody that wants to. I'm, I'm a big advocate of uh, mixing social media and mass media. We have posted a special website, for example, net, uh, nopipeline.net, which includes some of the videos and, and person-to-person interviews done, for example, by Carrie Rogers, our organizer, who went and talked to all the people that along the Atlantic Coast Pipeline route in North Carolina and got their views on their farms that had been in their families for a hundred years or some, uh, 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 or longer in some cases, and how they felt about having uh, their land taken away from them and why they didn't want that to happen. So the message was very easy to digest. And like I say, mass media uh, in the radio and the newspapers also is a good way to get out to the people that you will never get into come into a meeting on any issue, no matter how hard you try. But there's outreach that, that works in that way. But you've got to have news in order to be above the fold on a newspaper. With paid ads, of course, you can get a 30-second spot, relatively reasonable. You can do those campaigns for a few hundred dollars. Not they could, You can spend more, but uh, oftentimes they, they get additional uh, play by saying, all right, we're having a radio ad campaign starting on Friday. Hold a press conference, which gives you free media in addition to the paid media, which you've already got for the next week during drive time and whatnot. So those are not PSAs. Those are advocacy uh, uh, pieces, which speak uh, to the average individual. What, uh, what my wife Janet used to say is to the, to the smart 12-year-old, if you can get your message to the to that level of comprehension and reading ability, then you know you've got the majority of the public at least being able to hear your message, which of course is the first step to having them agree with you. That's amazing. The smart 12-year-old, huh? Um, Lou, you mentioned that there were other organizers from Bredel on the line. Um, I wanted to give everybody a chance to introduce themselves and, and say hello. Who else do we have? 
Okay, I think I see Marvin there, the area code 252. Uh, it's muted. Marvin Winstead is community yes. organizer. Um, Sharon, you heard from Sharon Ponton. And Carrie Rogers is, I don't see, oh, 704 should be uh, Carrie Rogers. Uh, there you could, 1704 okay. there. That would be Carrie. Uh, folks on the phone, if you want to just say hello, we'd love to hear from you. Go ahead. Um, this is Renee from Atlanta, um, Stonecrest, Georgia, um, organizer with Brettel. Um, I just got off the phone with one of our city councilors. We're having many battles right now. That's why I was late getting on, but... Um, Welcome. Thank you so much. And we really uh, need to talk about more. Um, I'll talk more with Lou about um, the campaigns for um, getting our word out um, and the expense associated with that. Mm -hmm. uh, we're fighting environmental injustices on many fronts and trying our best to educate the community and engage the community more. So I'm just glad I was able to get on. To got listen. you. And, and so what got you started in, uh, in organizing and what got you started in the, uh, the pipeline campaign in particular? Um, being with Blue Ridge Environmental Defense League, because there are so many different campaigns going, um, we want to support whatever Blue Ridge does that's going to enhance the quality of life for people who are affected by it. I don't live close to the pipeline at all, but we band together and support each other to do whatever we can to help. Um, and that pipeline, that was major. And, you know, we can't do it alone. It has to be a concerted effort with all of us um, fighting the powers that be. So that's um, anyway, right. Yeah. No, that's definitely right. Sharon, I see you're back. How are you? I'm good. And I, I saw a chat question um, yeah. about how we worked with other groups, yep. um, other grassroots groups, other organizations. And I think that's an important um question to answer and there were lots of groups uh, all along the pipeline route all kinds of organizations that that were working together um and i think it's important to point out that sometimes there's a, a really big um diversity in the tactics that different groups use so sometimes you might you might not want to participate in a particular activity um, and that it's fine as a group to say, no, we really don't want to do that. We collaborated as much as we possibly could, um, hands across our land and other things that we did, like the vigil, included many other groups participating. We had allies in Richmond. We had, you know, other, um, other grassroots organizations that participated at the bridge and, um, between Buckingham and Nelson County when we did the hands across our land. I don't know, I don't know, I'm not good at links, but the bridge is quite long across the James River there. We had enough people to span the bridge from all kinds of different organizations who participated in that, in that activity. We got national and state and local coverage of, the, of that activity. And, and getting your message out 
is really important and using the media to help you get that message out is really important. And that's why a lot of activities and events and actions are important. Um, and, and I will say that I believe the media coverage of the opposition to the pipeline changed over time. In mm -hmm. the beginning, there was always a response from Dominion to anything we did or said. In the end, there was not that much of a response. The, the press had, we had, we had won a lot of the press over and they weren't going to Dominion to get responses anymore. Um, Interesting. And I think, I think that was a really noticeable part of, of our campaign, I think. Um, yeah. But working with other groups is important and and holding your coalition together is really important when lou talked about we had conservative people and progressive people and and you know libertarians and democrats and republicans and everybody participated in this event in this in this um fight and finding a place for everybody is important you might want to have working groups where the conservatives who are really concerned about imminent imminent domain We'll be working on that where someone else will be working on air pollution or water pollution and that kind of thing so you find a place for all of the people that are participating and working with you and hold that coalition together yeah and that's a, a lot of wisdom that i'm getting from you sharon and and from lou earlier is that this you know is that we try to look for similarities right and and try to to get everybody in um to the best of our ability, I think uh, that's a lesson that a lot of folks can take from successful campaigns is, you know, God, uh, a long time ago, I was taught that a, a real social movement is, is one where anybody uh, can look and see themselves in yes. that. Like that's a real thing and a campaign is something else. Yes, I agree. There's organized coalitions, of course, that we've worked with and try to put together our, uh, the community organizing that I've uh, dwelt on is also sort of a coalition of itself. There are those chapter, those community groups name themselves. They have their own independent uh, operations in addition to the broader operations. Um, and I think coalition work is important. Uh, sometimes it can be a very loose coalition and a lot of times that's been effective and it's from a strategic point of view it's equally valid for example to have some kind of roundtable or communications between the many groups that are concerned about an issue such as a pipeline and not have to necessarily coordinate or be on the same letterhead or, or some formalized way of doing it it's if we know that you know group A is doing this on in, in March and group B is doing this in April, that it's fine to let those things happen on their own time and they're on, uh, on their own resources because right. it, is, uh, it is, in a way it's chaotic. And anybody that's dealt with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission knows that they have a, a system of permitting which is chaotic called tolling orders and whatnot, which allows projects to go forward before the permits are approved. So uh, a strategic response to that is a chaotic reply. So if even if we don't know everything that's going to happen within the next week or the next month, that's how it looks to your opponent. They don't know what's going to happen and they can't find out until it's too late. Mm -hmm. So there are many things happening. 
some of which you know about, some of which you don't know about, and it's all to the good. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Um, and this is such a great conversation. Um, I know that we're, we're scheduled to go until 1245, but I, am, I would like to uh, use my executive powers and authority to go a little bit long um, <laughs> and give us the opportunity to hear from any other uh, brittle organizers or, or um, people who participated in the pipeline campaign that we haven't heard from yet. Um, I would love to uh, hear from as many folks as possible on this call. Who else is on? Don't be shy. This is Bill Limpert. Um, I'm actually speaking from uh, Maryland right now, but uh, I was involved and still involved to some extent in fighting the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. I appreciate everything everybody's done in this historic victory. Uh, we need to bring this to the MVP, and we need to bring this to the Southgate Extension, and we need to bring this to other pipelines across our country. Uh, there's a little bit of work that needs to be done still to clean up from the ACP. They've got huge storage yards filled with pipe that has degraded coating on it. That degraded coating may be blowing off into the wind and to uh, surrounding communities. It's a chance that it has silica, uh, a carcinogen by inhalation in it. Um, I'm trying to get FERC to address it. Uh, just recently, FERC has required the ACP to submit a second report on tox possible toxicities in the coating and uh, going to follow up on that and also want to get those pipes out of there so that uh, folks aren't at risk. But uh, most importantly, I just want to thank everyone for the historic great work that you all have done over the last six years. It's, uh, it's incredible. Thank you very, very much. Thank you so much, Bill. Uh, As I said, community organizing is about people. It's not about issues. So welcoming people at whatever level, whatever understanding, not presuming, and living by the, the, the watchwords from our founder, Janet Marsh, which was many, uh, one person speaking alone may not be heard, but many people speaking with one voice cannot be ignored. That is the wisdom that we have lived by for all these years. Wow. And on that, thank you, Lou. Uh, thank you, Jen. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, Julie Silverman and Jenna Clark, who have been uh, vital behind the scenes, making this uh, series a success and, um, and viable. Thank you, Bill, for sharing with us. Uh, thank you, Teresa Mills, Feel Better, um, and everybody who was able to join us. Uh, have a wonderful afternoon, and uh, again, congratulations to everyone who had a, a hand in, in defeating this pipeline because uh, we are, we feel a little, we feel the warmth of that victory in our hearts, and, and we'll take as much of that as possible. Thanks, everyone. Let's go back out there, organize, fight, and win. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Fighting to Win. To learn more about the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice and the communities we're working with, visit www.chej.org. Subscribe to Fighting to Win wherever you listen to podcasts and stay tuned for new episodes.